take your Bibles tonight to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 13 as we conclude this short uh, three-part series on this particular chapter of the Bible, 1 Corinthians 13, often referred to as the love chapter, rightfully so, uh, un- without any doubt one of the most eloquent, one of the most powerful, one of the most beautiful passages of Scripture that we can find, 1 Corinthians chapter 13. And uh, by the way, if you didn't grab notes before you came in, if you want to exit real quick, there's some notes on the music stand just outside the doors there. Feel free just to step out and grab a copy of the notes if you'd like. 1 Corinthians 13. We're going to read through this chapter, uh, although tonight we're looking at the final verses, the final portion of the chapter, but we'll read through the whole chapter. 1 Corinthians 13, starting in verse number 1. Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels and have not charity, I am become a sounding brass or a tinkling cymbal. And though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have all faith so that I could remove mountains and have not charity, I am nothing. And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned and have not charity, it profiteth me nothing. Charity suffereth long and is kind, Charity envieth not. Charity vaunteth not itself, is not puffed up. Doth not behave itself unseemly. Seeketh not her own, is not easily provoked. Thinketh no evil. Rejoiceth not in iniquity, but rejoiceth in the truth. Beareth all things, believeth all things, hopeth all things, endureth all things. Charity never fails. But whether there be prophecies, they shall fail. Whether there be tongues, they shall cease. Whether there be knowledge, it shall vanish away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part, but when that which is perfect is come, then that which is in part shall be done away. When I was a child, I spake as a child, I understood as a child, I thought as a child. But when I became a man, I put away childish things. For now we see through a glass darkly, but then face to face, Now I know in part, but then shall I know, even as also I am known. And now abideth faith, hope, charity, these three, but the greatest of these is charity, is love. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you now as we are reading and seeking to study and understand your word Lord, we recognize just how needy we are, Father. We need your help to have a clear understanding of what your word is saying. But even more important than that, we need your help in order to live out the principles that we find in your word. And so, God, I pray that as we study this truly important topic of love, what it means to love according to you, Father, I know that all of us have room to grow. There are perhaps areas of our understanding of love that still need to be changed and bring into conformity with your word. But Lord, I pray that all of us would have the willingness and the desire to learn to love even as you have loved us. And so speak to our hearts tonight, Lord, I pray. Don't allow this to be a sterile exercise of simply gathering more knowledge, but may each of us be changed by your word. And we'll give you praise for that. In Jesus' name, amen. 
Some years ago, there was an evangelist by the name of Tom Williams. I don't know if any of you ever had the opportunity to hear him preach or not, but pretty well-known evangelist for, for a number of years until his wife came down with meningitis. And she had a severe bout of meningitis that left her um, like a vegetable. She was bedridden. Um, she was unresponsive. She needed to be taken care of completely. And Tom Williams was one of those who took seriously that vow on his wedding day when he said, I choose to love you in sickness and in health, whether in prosperity or in poverty, until death do us part. And so even though his wife was going to require um, serious care, and as far as the doctors were concerned, um, they had no real hope that she would recover from this, he was committed to taking care of his wife. And so, rather than abandoning her, so to speak, in a hospital somewhere or some other clinic, he was by her side day after day to love her and to care for her. And in spite of what the doctors had expected, she, in fact, uh, began to recover from this meningitis. And uh, sometime later, my wife was able to hear Tom Williams speak with his wife present in the service. She came out to the service with him and uh, was still struggling a little bit, was able to walk, was able to talk. Um, a re remarkable recovery that the doctors could only attribute to the love of her husband. As we have seen in previous weeks, the priority commandment and the preeminent grace that is throughout Scripture is to love. To learn what biblical love, God's love, or what we've called agape love, that's the Greek word agape, what agape love is all about. But not just to have an, an intellectual understanding of it, but to actually practice it. And if I can remind you that the verbs that are used throughout this text in 1 Corinthians 13 are in the present tense. That is, they speak of continual or habitual action. Love is not something that we're to do from time to time when the Spirit moves us or when we feel that there's somebody that's worthy of us showing them love. We are to love at all times. And so in spite of being provoked, in spite of being spurned, in spite of being disappointed, agape love perseveres. Love, true biblical love, never says, okay, I've forgiven this guy or this person enough, or I've just taken enough now, or I have tried time and again, I've done my part, I've done enough. That's not the language of biblical love. No, love continues to seek a way to overcome every obstacle. That's why the text says, love never fails. And so, as mature believers, we must never give up on showing agape love. And tonight, as we look at the last portion of the text, we're going to see how that is the goal for every Christian as we mature, is to grow in love and to show, to live out biblical love. Now, as we go through the study, we are going to refer at different times to the Greek text or the Greek grammar, and it's not meant to, um, I don't know, to, to impress anybody or anything else. It's that 
sometimes it's necessary as we study the Bible to have the best understanding possible of certain words or verbs or whatever to look at the grammar. And so I don't mean to, to belabor or bore you with that, but I do think it has a great impact, especially on the part of the chapter we're looking at tonight. So, first of all, agape love, designed to be permanent, presses on and on and on. Verse number 7 it says, beareth, love beareth all things, believeth all things, hopeth all things, endureth all things. So right away, when you look at this one verse, it just kind of jumps off the page. The repetition of the word, all. Love is all-encompassing. And not only informs how we view others, but is meant to affect every relationship. The good ones and the bad ones the ones that we're ecstatic about and the ones that we're very disappointed with. Love is meant to affect every one of those relationships. And in what way? Well, it says love bears all things. Now, the word here that's used literally has a sense of to cover something in the sense of protecting it. It's the decision to not mention or not bring up something that could be damaging to somebody else or could be embarrassing to somebody else. In my family growing up, we were great at, at sarcasm and at poking fun and pointing out the errors of others, okay? And everybody got to laugh at that, you know, when Kim did one of his, you know, foolish things and there was plenty to point at. <laughs> but uh, love doesn't do that, okay? Love covers. Love puts up with the faults of others and seeks even to cover them like with a cloak of silence. We saw the verse, I think, last week in Peter where it says that love covers a multitude of sins, Okay, love finds no joy, no satisfaction in recounting, in observing or recounting the sins of others. Okay, it would rather pass a cloak of silence over them. If you remember the story of Noah in the Old Testament after this remarkable man, you know, had uh, built the ark and weathered the, the flood and so forth, and they came out of the ark, at one point Noah got drunk, um, a relapse in his character, but he got drunk and he lay down in his, nut, in his tent naked. And the Bible says that one of his sons, Ham, when he saw his father laying there, went out and publicized the matter. He told, you know, his brothers and maybe others about this, what it was, what his father had done. And uh, the text, the Hebrew text kind of indicates he even derived some pleasure from doing that. Whereas when his two brothers, Shem and Japheth, heard what had happened to their father, the Bible says they took a garment laid it upon their shoulders, and went backward and covered the nakedness of their father. Wow, what a kind of a beautiful illustration of what love does, okay? Love covers the faults of others. Love seeks to, to throw a cloak of silence over the faults of others. And so, when it comes, when you ask which of Noah's sons showed real love and honor toward their father, well, it was clearly the latter two and not Ham. Now, again, this doesn't mean that we pretend that sin doesn't exist or that there aren't times when we need to confront sin. Jesus says so himself, right? In Matthew 18, he lays out the course of action when there is a sin that needs to be dealt with and how we should go about dealing with it. He, he has a very, you know, it's a very um, constructive approach even when we deal with sin. But it doesn't mean that love... Um, takes any joy in doing that. I remember one time in the uh, one church I was in down in Maryland, uh, just a great Baptist church down there, and um, there was a case of church discipline and where somebody in the church had, had fallen to sin and had not repented in spite of numerous 
uh, efforts to reconcile this person. And so finally, it came before the church as a matter of discipline. And what struck me, I'd never been in a church before where there was a case of church discipline. And what struck me was as people were um, discussing the situation, the fact that this person would have to be put outside the church, they were crying about it. They were broken. They were weeping after many had been, had been praying and, and uh, showing love to this person, trying to win them back. In spite of all the efforts, it ended up being fruitless, and so we had to discipline the person out. But it struck me the love that was being shown. There was no delight in recounting of the sin of anybody. It hurt them to think that this person wouldn't repent. So, love bears all things. The text goes on and says, love believes all things. This is the quality of love that seeks the best in others, that seeks to interpret the actions of others in the most positive light possible rather than in a negative light or rather than being cynical about it. It's giving others the benefit of the doubt. I mean, how good it is to hear someone say, I believe in you even after we've messed up. There was a young, a young man, teenager by the name of Gary Jones. Probably nobody here knows him, but um, Gary Jones had, a, had some troubled teen years and had uh, gotten into a lot of trouble. But at one point, a pastor took an interest in Gary and and uh, just God put on his heart to love this young man and to kind of give him a second chance. And at one point, the pastor threw his car keys to Gary Jones and said, would you go into town and pick something up for me? I believe in you. And Gary says that was a turning point in his life. He couldn't remember the last time that somebody had said those words, I believe in you. And the fact that this pastor was willing to give him a second chance and entrust his car to this young teenage boy really spoke to Gary, and it ended up being a turning point in his life. He became a pastor, and in fact, he's the one who married my wife and me, and so he has a dear place in our hearts. But because somebody was willing to believe all things, even in this troubled youth. But when faith in someone is shattered, even then, love continues to hope. Love hopes all things, says the text. Now, this isn't referring to an irrational optimism, which is no longer in touch with reality, but rather a steadfast refusal to accept any failure as final. Okay, so it's not recognizing that as we, you know, um, love someone and seek to help that person and so forth um, and be an encouragement to them. It's not saying we don't recognize that the person might fail at times and we recognize that failure, but we don't accept it as final. Even after a believer has fallen time and time again, we are still to maintain our hope that God's grace will ultimately prevail. Perhaps for some of you, you have a hard time believing that your spouse or other family members will still be saved after perhaps even hearing the gospel and rejecting it, perhaps even a number of times. But love pushes us to continue hoping and praying and working for their salvation no matter what the outward appearance. The Song of Solomon, chapter 8, says, Many waters cannot quench love, neither can the floods drown it. Love prevails. Love hopes all things. When my wife and I were visiting a church one time, we met this couple, Mike and Cindy Garvey, and uh, they shared their story with us, their testimony. And here, Cindy Garvey uh, had gotten saved 
Uh, I think they were still pretty young in their marriage. They'd only been married a short time, a couple years or something. But anyway, she got saved. But her husband, Mike, would have nothing to do with it. And so for 26 years, Cindy prayed for her husband's salvation. During that time, having to endure his rejection of her faith, having to endure his biting comments about her and about her church, having to endure the hardness of his heart. But as we met Mike and Cindy in that church that day, Mike was the first one to praise God wholeheartedly that for 26 years, his wife continued to show biblical love toward him, a love that hopes all things and love won out. Love endures all things. This word is kind of interesting, the word endure. It's actually a military term that is... Paul uses to describe love here, a military term which means to remain steadfast and to maintain one's position at any cost rather than running away from, you know, difficult circumstances. And so love stands fast in the face of adversity and in spite of personal wrongs that are suffered. Love will not remain discouraged but will courageously endure. Uh, during World War I, the French knew that they could not allow the strategically placed city of Verdun to fall into the hands of the Germans. And so the, the cry of the French became, you will go no further. In French, on ne passe pas, which meant that they were going to hold out at all cost and that they were ready to suffer greatly, if need be, in order to defend that position and defend that city. And they did just that. Listen, two thousand bombs per square meter. Two thousand bombs per square meter were dropped over the course of World War I as the Germans and French fought back and forth over the same parcel of land. It's unimaginable. Two thousand bombs per square meter. And yet the French held. The city was never taken and the Germans were eventually repulsed. They held firm out of love for their country, out of love for their families. Of course, the supreme example of this aspect of love was demonstrated by none other than our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, when out of love for us, he suffered on the cross in our place. If you would take your Bibles, turn to Hebrews chapter 12, a passage that describes it and uses the same word, as we have here, when it says love endures all things, we find that same word in Hebrews chapter 12 when it's describing Jesus and what he did for us. Look at this. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 2 and 3. Hebrews 12, verses 2 and 3. It says, Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured, there's our word, endured the cross despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him that endured, there it is again, endured such contradiction of sinners against himself, lest ye be wearied and faint in your minds. And so the Bible tries to describe what Jesus suffered and what he had to endure when he was hanging on that cross. As he took our sins upon himself, suffered the punishment, the wrath of his father for those sins, was in fact separated from his father at that time. It says he endured all that for the joy that was set before him. He hoped and love won out. He endured and love won out. Love endures all 
things, this text says. So, agape love, designed to be permanent, presses on and on and on. Secondly, starting at verse number 8, agape love, designed to be permanent, continues to grow to maturity. I mean, that's God's desire, is for love to grow to maturity in each of us. And so, let's read in verse number 8. Charity, or love, never fails, but whether there be prophecies, they shall fail, whether there be tongues, they shall cease, whether there be knowledge, it shall vanish away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part, but that which is perfect is come, and that which is in part shall be done away. So, Paul, to compare again love, now if you remember the first three verses, he talked about these spiritual gifts without love and showed how empty and, and uh, um, without value that is. Then in the following verses, 4 to 6, he described the, the value of love without any of the gifts. And now he goes back again to mention some of the gifts to contrast them with love. And he points out that while various spiritual gifts were to pass away, love would never pass away. And so he says in this text that there will come a time when the gifts of prophecy and knowledge will fail or will vanish away or will be done away. In fact, it's the same word in Greek when it says that uh, if there are prophecies, they shall fail. That's the same word as at the end of the verse 8 when it says, if there be knowledge, it shall vanish away. It's the same word in Greek used there. And in verse number 10, when it says, that which is in part shall be done away. Again, the same verb in Greek, same, exact same word, translated a little bit differently, okay? But it says there's a time when these different spiritual gifts will fail, vanish away, be done away. And the word has the idea of to be abolished or to be rendered of no effect. And in fact, the verb that's used is in the passive voice. And if you can remember your grammar from, you know, uh, years gone by, okay, when something's in the passive voice, that means there's something else acting upon the subject. So there's something else that would render of no effect these spiritual gifts. They would be rendered of no effect by something else. Verse 9 and 10 make that really clear. It says, For we know in part and prophesy in part, but when that which is perfect is come, then that which is in part shall be done away. Okay, so these spiritual gifts, which are only partial, would be done away, would be rendered of no effect by something else. So what is it that will render them of no effect? Well, it says, When that which is perfect is come. That's, that's the extent of what we got, okay? When that which is perfect is come. Not a lot necessarily to go with, but there's a few things that are important here. First of all, the word perfect isn't necessarily the idea of what, how we use the word perfect sometimes. It has the idea more of something that is complete. And so again, with, in contrast with that which is partial, when that which is complete is come, then that which is partial will be done away. In addition to that, when it says that which is perfect, the word that in the phrase that which is perfect, it's a pronoun in Greek, and it's actually of the, in the neuter gender. Okay, so in Greek, there's three genders, neuter, masculine, and feminine. Why is that important? Well, because since it's a neuter gendered pronoun, that eliminates certain possibilities of what is in view here. 
For example, it's not talking about Jesus. It might seem obvious, like that which is perfect. Oh, Jesus, when Jesus comes, then all these other things will pass away. That sounds maybe logical, except if it were Jesus being talked about, there would be a masculine pronoun used here, not a neuter pronoun. Some have thought, well, then maybe it's love. When love, when you know, the, the complete mature love comes, then all these other partial things will be done away. That's a great idea too, but the word love in Greek is a feminine word, so it's not referring to that. And so many see this neuter pronoun as a reference to the completion of the Bible. When that which is perfect, complete, is come, that which is partial will be done away. It's interesting that the spiritual gifts mentioned here have to do with revelation. Prophecy and knowledge dealt with revelation. And so it's saying when the partial revelation, uh, I'm sorry, when the complete revelation has come, these partial revelations will no longer have any room. There will no longer be any need for them because we'll have the entire Word of God. And so many see this as a reference to the completion of the Bible. When Paul wrote 1 Corinthians 13, this was one of the first, one of the early books of the New Testament. Much of the New Testament hadn't been written yet. And so at that time, the spiritual gifts of prophecy and knowledge were still very much needed and practiced in the church. But he's saying there will come a time when the complete revelation of God will be done and there will no longer be need for the partial gifts that we have right now. And so, once the Bible was completely written, these partial gifts, which only had a temporary function, would be rendered of no effect, would be done away, would, be, would vanish. If you, to make that kind of clear, if you would turn to 2 Timothy chapter 3, um, this is a very familiar passage for many, but I don't know if you ever thought about it in terms of what we're talking about right now. 2 Timothy chapter 3, Paul writes this particular part of the Bible toward the very end of his ministry, and he makes this statement that has, I think, a direct correlation with what we're looking at in 1 Corinthians 13. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. Notice what he says. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be mm, perfect, same word, complete, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. So Paul says here that all Scripture is given by the inspiration of God. The whole Bible was inspired by God and is profitable. He names the different ways that the Scriptures are profitable, saying, and the purpose is that the man of God may be complete. It's the complete revelation of Scripture that allows us to be complete, perfect in that sense. And so, yes, for a time, we only had those spiritual gifts that were giving bits of knowledge, bits of revelation to the churches, to the early churches. But now that we have the complete revelation of God, those have been done away. So, we see here from the text in Corinthians that these different spiritual gifts, especially those dealing with revelation, would, there would come a time when they would fail, when they would vanish away, be done away. And then Paul refers to another gift in this context in 1 Corinthians 13, talking about the gift of tongues. And so in verse 10, he makes the comment, I'm sorry, in uh, uh, verse 8, when he says, love never fails, but whether there be prophecies, they shall fail. Whether there be tongues, they shall cease. Now, 
First of all, let's remind ourselves what the gift of tongues was all about, okay? The gift of tongues was the supernatural ability to speak in a known language at that time, one of the known languages, and there were a lot of them, but a language that people could understand. It was a sup- the supernatural ability to speak in a known language that the speaker had never learned. And I can assure you that gift would be incredibly practical today. Uh, I would not have had to spend hours and hours studying French grammar if uh, the gift of tongues still existed and God would have allowed me to just be able to open my mouth and, you know, out comes the perfect French. Right now, that would be fantastic. <laughs> and uh, I'd love to do that with Spanish now, okay, in this area. You know, there's so many people who speak Spanish. And I, just, I don't know any Spanish. I'd just love to make that switch over and say, God, give me the other gift now of Spanish. But that was the gift back in that day. And we have one of the examples, one of the beautiful examples in Acts chapter 2 on the day of Pentecost, right, when the Holy Spirit came upon those believers and the apostles stood up and began to speak in tongues, that is in languages, and Acts chapter 2 even names the exact languages that they were speaking. And the people who were hearing were amazed, saying, how is it that these Galileans, these uneducated Galileans, these Galileans who never learned Latin or, you know, uh, Arabic or all these other languages, how is it they're speaking in our languages the wonders of God, the marvels of God? And they recognized it was a supernatural event. And it was. That was the gift of tongues. Now, I know today there's a lot of Christian groups that say that they're practicing the gift of tongues, but if you seek to understand exactly what it is they're doing. It has nothing to do with the original gift of tongues. All right, so they've kind of invented their own manifestation of tongues, but it's not the biblical gift of tongues, okay? It's not a known language. Nobody else can understand it, etc. Serves no purpose. But the text here in 1 Corinthians 13 says that that gift of tongues was to cease. Now, in this particular case, the verb is in the middle voice, which we don't have in English, Okay? There's, there's some languages out there have some crazy verb tenses. I'll tell you what, seriously. We can be thankful for English, all right? It is really simple in a lot of ways. But in Greek, it was the middle voice, which usually has the idea of something that acts upon itself. The subject is acting upon itself. Hmm, that's interesting. These tongues would cease of themselves is the idea. It refers to the idea that this gift was designed to end on its own. That is, its purpose for being would no longer exist. Well, what was the purpose of tongues? Well, Paul actually tells us that. In the next chapter, 1 Corinthians chapter 14, Paul explains exactly what the purpose of tongues is. Now, 1 Corinthians 14, Paul makes a long discussion to contrast the benefit of prophesying over the gift of tongues. And in that context, he says in chapter 14, verses 21 and 22, notice what he writes. He says, in the law it is written... With men of other tongues and other lips will I speak unto this people, referring to the Jews, and yet for all that they will not hear me, saith the Lord. Wherefore, okay, Paul comes to a conclusion. Wherefore, tongues are for a sign, not to them that believe, but to them that believe not. But prophesying serveth not for them that believe not, but for them that which believe. So Paul lays it right out here. He says, it's through these, un, these tongues, these, this uh, supernatural gift of tongues that God would speak to this people, specifically referring to the Jewish people, Israel, 
And he says, therefore, tongues are a sign unto those who do not believe. And so it was a supernatural manifestation to get the Jews' attention that God was in the, tr- in the process of doing something incredible as he carried out his plan of redemption, and they were missing out on it. And for some Jews, like on the day of Pentecost, it was quite effective. It got the attention of a huge crowd, and 3,000 people got saved, primarily Jews, got saved that day. Okay, they recognized that this was indeed an, um, something that God was accomplishing, and that God was in the process of moving through these apostles, and they listened to the message, and they got saved. But the text says that there will come the time the gift of tongues will cease. Well, why is that? Well, tongues served as a warning to unbelieving Jews primarily. That's what 1 Corinthians 14 says. Now, just to point out, again, today in the groups that still try to practice this idea of tongues. Okay, not only are they not real languages that nobody understands, but in addition, when they, most of these groups, when they teach that you need to speak in these gibberish tongues, these unknown tongues, they say the reason for that is as a sign to a believer. That is, if you are able to speak in tongues, then it shows you as a believer that you've received the baptism of the Holy Spirit. That's a very typical teaching in like charismatic and Pentecostal type churches. That's not what Paul says. Paul says it's not for the believers. It's a sign for the unbelievers. The exact opposite. And so, when Israel ceased to be a nation some years later, after Paul had written 1 Corinthians, some 20 years later, 70 AD, Israel ceased to be a nation. Therefore, this particular spiritual gift, which served as a sign for the Jews to the nation of Israel, no longer served any purpose. And so, as Paul anticipated by inspiration of the Holy Spirit, tongues would cease. The time would come when they would no longer serve their God-ordained purpose, and they would cease. And historically, when we look back, that is what happened. Tongues just stopped. And for centuries, basically, there was literal any manifestation of anything remotely resembling tongues because exactly what Paul described in 1 Corinthians 13 took place. So, the point is, the various spiritual gifts, as Paul goes back to that topic again and talks about these gifts, he gives us several examples, prophecy, knowledge, tongues. He says these various spiritual gifts are incomplete and designed from the beginning, they were designed to come to an end. There would be a time when these gifts would serve no more purpose. Whereas love is an attribute of God himself that would never fail, never vanish, never be done away, never be rendered of no effect. That's what Paul is seeking to do here. He's setting up a contrast again between the spiritual gifts, which are only designed to be partial, only designed to be temporary, contrasting that which is love with love, which is intended to be permanent, and which is complete. It is the whole package. And so Paul's point here is for believers to let go of those things which were meant to pass and to concern ourselves with that which is lasting and permanent. In some churches I've uh, come across, uh, as they talk about spiritual gifts, um, they'll do seminars and things on this, and, and sometimes they'll even have like a, um, like a type of a quiz that you take 
to determine what your spiritual gifts are. I actually have a copy in my office if you want to see it, okay? Um, it's, kind of, it's kind of curious even. But um, it says, like, for example, it says, like, do you like to receive people into your house? Then you have the gift of hospitality. Like, okay, I think I could have figured that one out myself, you know? But, uh, and so there's a lot of focus on you need to know your spiritual gift, you know? And then you need to know how to practice your spiritual gift. And Paul's saying, okay, there's a place for the spiritual gifts and those that there are gifts that continue today. There's a place for all that. But that really shouldn't be our focus. Our focus ought to be on love. Love is the complete package. And like he's pointing out, to have any of the gifts without love is pointless anyway. But if you have love, you got everything. There'll be nothing missing. And so finally, as Paul gets toward the end of this chapter, he says that in verse 11, while the Christian life requires stages of growth, we recognize that as a young believer, we need to start learning the Bible. We need to start learning spiritual disciplines of prayer and church involvement, all those things. While the Christian life requires stages of growth, love is the reflection of true spiritual maturity. In verse number 11, Paul says, When I was a child, I spake as a child, I understood as a child, I thought as a child. But when I became a man, I put away childish things. And so Paul recognizes that in every Christian's life, there's a period of growth. There's a time of learning, a time of growing. But he says, but our desire should be, our goal should be to become mature Christians. And if we are seeking to become mature Christians, then we will recognize how important love is. And so, uh, one uh, commentator, his name is Godet, um, he uh, points out that the three terms that Paul uses in verse 11, to speak, to understand, and to think, are probably an allusion to the three gifts that he just mentioned. That is, speaking corresponds to tongues, understanding corresponds to prophecy, and thinking uh, corresponds to knowledge. But the point being, again, that the, those initial gifts had their place during the infancy of the church. But as the church matured, the, these gifts of childhood should naturally be replaced by that which is characteristic of adulthood, notably a proper understanding of love and how love is to be lived out. And so Paul says it's time to put away those childish things and to focus on what really matters, that is love. And when he uses that phrase to put away in verse number 11, when I became a man, I put away childish things, it means to put an end to. Um, and it's a verb in an active voice, which means Christians need to purposefully choose. They need to be determined, actively seek to grow in this area of love. We all have things to learn when it comes to, to biblical agape love. And so we must purposely choose to not allow ourselves to continue acting like spiritual children, but rather as mature believers. And throughout the Scriptures, we see that there's a direct correlation between this growth as a believer and growing in love, between that and the amount of time we spend in the Word of God. Uh, if you turn... Uh, briefly with me to 2 Timothy chapter 2. 2 Timothy chapter 2. The Bible encourages us, exhorts us. 2 Timothy 2 verse 15. It says, To study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. It's upon us. It behooves us to spend time in the word, to study the word, so that we do not so that we're not ashamed. We don't make wrong choices or act in an unloving manner. 
Or again, look at um, 2 Timothy, oh, we read it earlier, 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, when it talks about all Scripture being inspired in verse 17, that the man of God may be perfect, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. If we want to accomplish those good works that God has ordained for us, which obviously is predicated especially upon love, he says, then you need to know the Scriptures. That's the key to learning what real love is. And so finally, in the final verses of 1 Corinthians 13, Paul says, agape love, which is designed to be permanent, is God's ultimate goal for each of us. And so verse 12, he says, for now we see through a glass darkly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then shall I know even as also I am known. He says in verse 12, 12, he, he underlines the completeness of love. He says, now back then, the glass that they used or the mirror that they used oftentimes was made of brass. They didn't have mirrors like we have today. And so they used these brass mirrors that even at their best, it was kind of a murky reflection, right? Well, even like they used brass mirrors back then, even today with the Spirit of God that dwells within us and even with the church that's there to teach and help us and even with the Bibles that we own, our vision is still clouded. That is oftentimes our emotions get in the way and muddle things up in a, in a relationship or in a discussion. Oftentimes we have a limited perspective on things, men who are trying to figure out women huh, and vice versa, or one culture trying to understand why another culture is so different, why they do the things the way they do. It makes no sense to us why they do that. And so even now we have this you know, clouded understanding of things Besides that, our knowledge and ability to understand are so limited. I mean, we only know a tiny fraction of all that can be known. And then there's so much more that is completely unknown. I mean, we can't even wrap our minds around concepts like eternity in time or infinity in space. We don't know why there is something rather than nothing. We can't explain why that particular trial happened to that particular person at that particular time. There's so much that we don't know and can't know. But one day, the text says, we will know. Verse 12. Even as we also are known. One day, just as fully and thoroughly as God knows us, we will know and will understand. And in that day, we will simply give praise to God and recognize that He always acted according to His perfect character and always acted with perfect love. The completeness of love. And finally, verse 13, the superiority of love. He closes the chapter by saying, And now abideth faith, hope, charity, these three, but the greatest of these is love. Paul sums up the Christian life with these three qualities, these three dispositions. Faith, which kind of looks to the past on the accomplished sacrifice of Christ on the cross, which purchased our salvation. It talks about hope, which looks forward to the end of our salvation when the Lord comes and takes us to be with Him in heaven. And love, which encompasses all the rest, embraces the ever-abiding Christ who seeks to transform us so that we can learn to love others like God has loved us. And so Paul says, while these three dispositions, three dispositions, huh. last week I had a problem with another word. I forget what it was now. 
There's always one that hangs me up here. While these three dispositions, there we go, were meant to continue even after the cessation of spiritual gifts, yet there is one quality which rises above all the others, and that is love. God is not faith. God is not hope. But God is love. And so it's no surprise that as Paul then proceeds in chapter 14, the next phrase that we read, chapter 14, verse 1, he says, follow after love. Paul exhorts us to follow after, to pursue love. We are to press toward the mark. It's the same word that Paul uses in Philippians when he says that, to press toward the mark of the high calling in Christ Jesus. We're to pursue this goal of love with ardent passion, Strive to live according to the high standards that we read in verses 4 to 6, what real love is all about. And so let us press toward the mark of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. Let us learn to love. Let's pray. Lord God, we do want to thank you, Father, that you have shown and show what perfect love is. As the Bible says, you commend your love toward us. You demonstrate your love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Jesus, here on earth, said, no greater love had a man than this, that he would lay down his life for his friends. And so, Lord, you have demonstrated to us what perfect love looks like, what agape love looks like. We who are so undeserving, we who have even turned our backs on you, have ignored you, have offended you, you continue to love us. You continue to pursue us. You continue to want what's best for us. It's a love that confounds us and a love which we rarely see demonstrated in this world, but a love that we have been called to. And so, just like Paul wrote to the Thessalonians and said that they knew how to love, and yet they were to abound even more and more in love. And so, Lord, that's true for this congregation as well. There are many people here that truly show Christian love. I've been moved many, many times, Lord, by the love demonstrated by folks in this church, and yet this church as well needs to abound more and more in love. And so, Lord, help each one of us be honest with ourselves tonight. Help each one of us to be able to identify those areas of our life or the areas of our character which are not loving and to submit them to you and to seek your face, Lord, that you would help us to grow in love which is the completeness, Lord, that you desire for us, the maturity that you desire for us, the ultimate goal that we're called to. Thank you, Lord, in the meantime, for your patience with us. Thank you, Lord, that you continue to work with us and in us and through us. And so, Father, we thank you for all that you will accomplish in our lives still. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.